0: Lord, we are so grateful to be gathered together here to enjoy the fellowship of your body. Um, We just are so grateful that we are united in Christ, that he is the cornerstone upon which we are all built. Lord, I pray that as we uh, defend Christ this morning and as we um, admire him, that our love for him would grow, that we would become more grounded in our faith. Uh, Really, Lord, that we would just um, become more and more like your son and uh, greater students of your word. Thank you for him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so just a quick review of our last two weeks of our study. The first week, we looked at essentially what the central components of the gospel are. And we concluded that salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. And there are people who say, I do a lot of really good works, but those people are denying the righteousness of Christ. There's people who say, yes, I am adding works to Christ. I have faith in him, but I'm also trusting in baptism and communion and all of these other things to contribute to my salvation. And those people are denying the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. The Bible clearly states that salvation is faith alone and Christ alone. And it is eternally significant that we get this right. And Paul tells us why in Galatians chapter 1. He says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says it is very important that we get the gospel right. And we have examined then what makes up the true gospel and the true Jesus. Last week we considered the issue of the deity of Christ. From almost the beginning of church history, there have been people who deny that Jesus is God. It's actually been one of the dividing lines between what marks us and cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who deny that Jesus is God. And it's particularly tricky because there are some terms or language in scripture that would seem to give credibility to that idea. Jesus is called the firstborn of creation in Colossians chapter 1. He's called the son of God. There are these terms that might lend themselves to this idea that maybe he's created, but we considered those passages last week, and we saw unequivocally, even those titles, firstborn of creation, son of God, are communicating what to us, that Jesus is God. It's clear in scriptures. Today, we're going to examine another distortion of the person of Jesus, and that is his humanity much like there were people in ancient church history who denied the deity of Christ, so too were there people who denied the humanity of Christ. And this idea, this heresy, is called docetism. You can see it on the screen there. It's the belief that Jesus was not fully human. And it seems to have originated from this idea that Docetists really wanted to preserve the deity of Christ. They were firmly grounded in this idea that Jesus is God. And so because of that, it was very difficult for them to comprehend how then God could take on the frailties and limitations of a human body, right? And maybe maybe we need to think about this a little bit, consider Jesus, the eternal creator, all-powerful God, becoming a little, tiny, frail baby who is dependent 24-7 on his mother to take care of him, to feed him, to change him, who grows up, experiences all of the normal functions and frailties and limitations of a human body. He bleeds, he weeps, he's hungry, God experienced those things, but it was very, very, very difficult for the Docetists, who hold so tightly to the deity of Jesus, to think that God could suffer the same limitations that we do. But historically, it it was very hard to deny the humanity of Christ, right? Because even unsaved people admit that Jesus was a real person. Unsaved people say, yeah, Jesus walked on the earth. During the time of the Roman Empire, he died on a cross. We understand that. That's history. They even admit his humanity. So Docetus, in order to explain history and their own position about the deity of Christ, said, well, maybe Jesus had a body, but it wasn't a human body. Maybe he had like an angelic body, like a glorified body, but it wasn't human. It it was just a different type of body. Okay, Uh, they also offered even... To a more extreme sense, Docetists would say Jesus didn't have a body at all. He was more like a ghost who gave off this projection of having a body. That's what they would say about Jesus to preserve his deity. They said, no way was Jesus actually a flesh and blood human to the extent that we are. Thankfully, this view was condemned, along with other heresies at the Council of Nicaea. But this type of thinking that it is ridiculous or impossible that God would become a man exists to this day. Let me just read from you a couple of quotes that I pulled off the internet that say this. The claim that God became man is also an absurdity. It is not befitting of God to take on human characteristics because it means that the creator, has become his creation. Man is a finite being. Man is born and he dies. There are, these are characteristics which cannot be attributed to God because they equate him with his creation. Therefore, God did not and will not ever become a man. The most important idea which needs to be understood is that God did not become man, God is unique. He alone deserves to be worshipped by his creation. To believe that a man is God or that a man became God and to worship that man is the greatest sin and greatest evil that humans can do on this earth. Do you see how these quotes are denying the humanity of Christ? Anyone want to take a stab at what major world religion teaches this about God becoming a man? This is Islam. Pull this off of a website, I believe it's called islamreligion.org or something. And it seems to be directed against the Christian position that God actually did become a man, and they're denying that. In fact, they're taking it as far as to say that to worship the God-man is the greatest sin and greatest evil that humans can do on the earth. I find it very interesting that docetists, who we would think of as just uh, an aberration to Christianity, would think the exact same as Muslims concerning the nature of Christ. Docetists deny that Jesus became a human. Muslims would deny that. And I think it's fair and right that we ask, well then, how serious is this error? How serious is it to deny that Jesus became an actual flesh and blood human being? The church father, Ignatius, thought it was a very serious matter indeed. He says this. If, speaking about Jesus, he became man in appearance only, that he did not in reality take unto him a body, that he died in appearance merely and did not in very deeds suffer, then for what reason am I now in bonds and long to be exposed to the wild beasts? I do not place my hopes in one who died for me in appearance, but in reality. You see the point that Ignatius is trying to make here? To put it in modern terms, Ignatius is saying, did Christ actually die and rise from the dead, or is this all a show? Is this all just an appearance? If it's just for show, if Jesus wasn't a human and this was all just some sort of mirage, then what is the point of me dying for my faith? What hope does Ignatian have of resurrection from the dead if Christ also didn't rise from the dead himself? If he's just the appearance of a body? What hope do we have? Paul says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, we're of all people most to be pitied because our faith is dead. Notice how seriously the scriptures take this false teaching about Jesus not being a human. In 1 John, the Apostle John says this By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Notice the contrast here. The spirit of God confesses what? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That he is a person. However, those who would deny that are in the spirit of the Antichrist. John isn't done. The next book, 2 John, chapter 1, verse 7, we read, he says again, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. John is saying there are people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, and this isn't just a, oh, nice try, but you're wrong. It's a, you are deceiving people. This is the spirit of the antichrist. The idea that Jesus came in the flesh is something that is incredibly important. And as I've repeated several times now throughout this series, it is extremely eternally significant that we get the person of Jesus right. That we are not worshiping and following a Jesus of our own making. That we slap on all these attributes to you and say, yeah, I think these things would be true about Jesus. No, but that we are worshiping the Jesus as the scriptures reveal him to be, who say that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And as we've done then with the previous two weeks, we'll just look at the scriptures and let the evidence of the scriptures tell us, is Jesus an appearance of a human? or is he flesh and blood, one of us? Let's look at the scriptures. I'll have them on the screen for you. Perhaps you're thinking that our defense of the humanity of Christ would begin in the New Testament, maybe in John chapter one, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But actually, the anticipation of Jesus being a human begins at the beginning in the book of Genesis. I trust you know the story well. God told Adam and Eve, the garden is yours, take care of it, steward it. You can do whatever you want, except for touch one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of its fruit. And we know the story well, right? What happens within a chapter? Satan tempts Eve, she eats the fruit, she gives it to Adam, Adam eats the fruit, and from that moment on, mankind has been plunged into sin, and death, destruction. The Bible's pretty clear about this, about what Adam's sin did, how it affected us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read, for as in Adam, all die. Because of the sin of Adam, we're following in those footsteps. Death was introduced into the world. Romans 5 talks about it as well. It says, because of one man's trespass, that one man is Adam, death reigned through that one man. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And things seem pretty dark in Genesis chapter 3, but that's not the end of the story. God makes a promise to the woman, to humanity. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. How? This chapter, this verse is very, very familiar to many of us. We know this is talking about Jesus, but what in this verse should key us into the fact that Jesus is a human? Yes, that Jesus is called not the appearance of a human. He's called the offspring of a woman. From the outset in scripture, we have this expectation then that a human is going to come and bruise the head of the serpent. That a human is going to come and undo the work of the first Adam. Adam. So let's revisit some of those same passages in the New Testament where we saw what Adam had accomplished for us, all these death and condemnation and trespasses. And I didn't show the whole verse because it contrasts it with the work of Christ. So we read this in the broader context of 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And notice the context, the contrast rather here in the text. We have a man who brings death, but there is another man who brings about the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Romans chapter 5, we'll look at the entirety of this passage. It says, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For if, because of one man's trespass, trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, the scriptures are clear here. There is one man whose trespass introduced sin into the world. And there is another man, a human, who brought this free gift of grace and righteousness. And his name is Jesus Christ. Are the scriptures unclear, then, about the humanity of Jesus? they're not. It's being very careful to say there was one man, Adam, and there's one man, Jesus Christ, who's undoing the work of Adam. The comparisons don't stop there, though. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read that the first man, Adam, became a life, excuse me, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus here is symbolically called the second Adam. The last Adam. It's clear. There's two Adams in Scripture. One brought ruin and death and destruction. The other brings hope of eternal life. But the Old Testament isn't done talking about this. Isaiah chapter 7. We read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, from a woman is coming a baby human child. Isaiah chapter 9, also talking about Jesus. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Isaiah is pretty clear. There's coming a real baby, a real human, who's going to do these things. John chapter 1 becomes the New Testament. And we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you remember from last week, it is the same word who is equated with God back in verse one. So we know the word is talking about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice that this verse doesn't say the word had the appearance of flesh. Notice that it doesn't say the word was partially human. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we can actually see evidences of the humanity of Christ in the gospels as it just describes some of the inherent frailties of the human body that Jesus himself experienced. So we see in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus was hungry. The human Jesus got hungry. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. God doesn't get hungry. The human Jesus does. Jesus also got fatigued. The the disciples and Jesus, as they are making their way from Galilee, excuse me, from Judea up into Galilee, have to pass through Samaria. A good, I think I read online, 60, 70 miles journey, probably on foot. They stop in Samaria. Jesus stops at this well where the famous story about the woman at the well happens. We read this about Jesus. Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus got tired. Imagine walking 60, 70 miles. The human Jesus got tired. Remember, remember, there's another instance in which the disciples and Jesus are crossing the Sea of Galilee and there's this like crazy storm that's going on. And the disciples are really like in fear of their lives. And they're just like panicking. And and where does Jesus turn out to be in that whole situation? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Jesus slept. How about this? Jesus had emotions. In Mark chapter 10, We read that they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus has just been hailed as the king of Jerusalem. You remember the people are crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! to the son of David. They're waving these palm branches, throwing their coats down on the ground. And as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem, we read this. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus knew the destruction that was gonna befall that city because of their rejection of him. And he weeps. Jesus had emotions. This one is fascinating. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus is talking about his return And he says this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Think about that. Jesus is saying that the human Jesus didn't even know the date or the time of his return. He had set aside His omniscience, his ability to know everything. Luke chapter 2 tells us that Jesus grew up. He increased in wisdom and in knowledge and in favor with God and man. I think it was stature there. He's learning. It seems strange to us that Jesus would not know something as God. But here the text is saying, listen, the human Jesus set aside his omniscience, chose not to exercise it. We come across a similar paradox in John chapter 14 when Jesus, talking to his disciples, says this, The Father is greater than I. Now that should cause us to scratch our heads just a little bit because I spent 45 minutes last week talking about how Jesus is unequivocally God. And for him to then say in John chapter 14 that the Father is greater than he is, almost insinuating that he's lesser than God, should make it go like, what? What? What's happening here? I think scripture can help us come to the correct answer on why Jesus can say this, that the Father is greater than him. Look what Hebrews chapter 2 says about Jesus becoming a man. We see that him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Philippians chapter 2 is even more clear about this when it says about Jesus that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And I want you to notice some of the words in this verse here. Actually, you tell me. What words in this verse communicate or would lend itself to this idea that actually Jesus could rightly say that the Father was greater than he is? What do we see in the text that gives evidence to that? He humbled himself, yes. What else? Emptied himself, yes. There's more. He was obedient. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. We see humbled himself again to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus willingly humbled himself, became a servant, put himself, as Hebrew says, lower than the angels. And so Jesus can rightly say then, if all of these things are true, that in his human form, the father was greater than him. But this should not detract from his deity. I admit that there is a bit of a mystery surrounding the dual nature of Christ. How can Jesus be both fully God and not know something like we just read about and fully man? It's a bit of a mystery. Much like the Trinity is very, very difficult to explain without veering off into some form of heresy or miscommunication. But the point is not that we comprehend this, that we believe it and that we defend it because people, since the beginning of the church, have been trying to deny these things. People have been denying that Jesus is God. People denied that Jesus was man. And I'm just telling you from the scriptures, Jesus is both. He's fully God and he's fully man. We must get the person of Jesus, right as we proclaim him to the world. Other religions, I hope this is clear to you now, have a being that they have titled Jesus. The Mormons have a Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus. Other religions have them as well. But that is not the Jesus that the scriptures have revealed. This is the Jesus that we must place our faith in. He alone can save. And I'd like to answer one final question this morning. Why is it important that Jesus is man? Why should we defend this? Why does it matter? Can we not just get along with people who say, I think he's created? I think he's not a human can we get along with these people and say, mm, see you in heaven? We can't. The scriptures will tell us why, but the answer to this question actually builds on some of the truths that we've already considered today. It's this idea that Jesus, the second Adam, has come to undo the work of the first. If you think about it, remember I said Adam sinned and that, And from that moment forward, sin and death and destruction reigned. If you think about it from like a family tree's perspective, you have Adam over here at the very top of the family tree. And everyone who has descended from Adam subsequently has been born into sin and death and are under condemnation. But Romans chapter 5 says that Adam was a type of the one to come. We considered 1 Corinthians saying that there was a last Adam. And so much like there is a first human Adam who does all of these bad things for us, there is a second human. There is a second Adam who, if we are able to move in under his influence, his family tree, so to speak, we have righteousness, hope of eternal life, that second Adam lived the sinless life, the life that God had intended. And through his righteousness, we can all be declared righteous. And the scriptures are clear that to undo this work, to be the last Adam, Jesus had to be human. Not that he could have been human. Not that he was the appearance of a human. But to undo what Adam had done Jesus had to be a human. The scriptures are clear about that. Let me show you. Let me defend that case. Romans chapter 8, I've got it on the screen for you. Verses 3 and 4 say this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law cannot save us. It's called the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. But God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see that the condemnation, the punishment for sin that all of humanity deserved, was, in fact, poured out on a human. A human bore the weight of God's wrath against sin. That human is Jesus. So Jesus, although he did nothing wrong, bore God's wrath, and because of his work, attributed to us is his righteousness. The law demanded righteousness. And through Jesus, that last Adam, we can obtain it. Galatians chapter 4 reiterates this. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption As sons, this text is again drawing our attention to the fact Jesus was a human. He had to be. He had to be born under the law to meet the requirements of the law. To do what? To accomplish our adoption as sons. A third verse, Hebrews chapter 2, really elaborates on this, and it says this about Jesus. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And notice how it is that Jesus defeats the devil. How does the scripture say it is? Through what? Through death. And so Jesus, if God cannot die, and Jesus is just an appearance of a human, He's retained his deity. Then what has he actually accomplished for us? To, to believe the teaching of Docetist is to really say that Jesus didn't die. And yet the author of Hebrews is making the point Jesus had to die so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil This is a direct fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, which we considered earlier this morning, that the offspring of a woman, a human being, would die. And in so doing, bruise the head of the serpent. This is why we must fight for this. Jesus was a real man. He died for our sins. Like Ignatius said, if Jesus just had the appearance of a human body, that he didn't really die, then Satan hasn't been defeated, and our redemption has not been secured. We need a human to do this for them, to do this for us, and the Scripture is making that clear. Hebrews isn't done though. Just a couple of verses later, it's again about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful High Priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Second, Jesus was a human and is subsequently our perfect high priest. We're going to look at this in depth next week. But I want you to consider that Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. I want you to think about the significance of that. That God, from our way of thinking, who is so lofty, so far removed from humanity, we must wonder if he just sits back and looks at us and says, what are you guys doing you're always falling into sin. The same ones. You repent of those sins, and if you're anything like me, 15 minutes later, you're back in the same sin. Can you imagine how frustrated, if God were like us, he must be, to see us fall into those same things over and over and over again, and be like, what is wrong with you guys? Uh, wh- wh- why is sin so attractive? And yet, scripture tells us that we have a high priest, a mediator, who's experienced those same temptations. And Jesus knows how strong they can be. He was sinless. He said no to them throughout the entirety of his life. And it is that human Jesus who has also experienced temptation and sin, (laughs) trying to get a hold of his heart, Who says to the Father, I know. He can intercede for us perfectly because he's experienced what we have. Is there a better advocate than the God man? One who knows what it is to be us? That's Jesus. Just a couple of final observations here. I want you to consider the humility of Jesus. Bear with me here for a second. But I think that to a point, the sentiments that Docetists have, the sentiments that Muslims have regarding God becoming a man, have some legitimacy to a point. Let me explain that if I can. They argue that God is so far above creation that it is ridiculous and impossible that God could become a human. I think there's something to that, especially from like our way of thinking, where if we really think about it, the God who spoke and everything we see jumped into existence, who from, again, more of a secular perspective, we are just specks of dust on a rock in space, why would God, if he's that much greater than us, even waste his time interacting with us? To a point, I can understand what they are saying. That doesn't make sense. You're that great and you would become a human? Well, that's exactly what the Scriptures said Jesus did he did it to save us. Us weak, foolish, rebellious, continually wicked people, the eternal, all-powerful God became one of us. And for as logically impossible as it might seem to people, for as just ridiculous as it might seem to people, that is evidence of God's love for us. That he would do that. So Jesus' humility is beyond our comprehension. And Jesus calls us to model him in that same humility. To consider other people and their needs as greater than our own. To be willing to give up ourselves because Jesus, our Savior, gave up himself for us. So in this doctrine of the humanity of Jesus, there is an application which is also be humble. Be like him. Be willing to give of yourself for others. And secondly, consider this, that Jesus is still a man to this day. Perhaps you've never thought about that before, but Jesus, after his resurrection, Says to the disciples, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus in his resurrected body had a body that you could touch and feel. He told Thomas, Put your hand in my side, touch the scars. When John sees him, he sees the appearance of a man in Revelation chapter 1. Paul says this about Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The who? The man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is still a man to this day. The image of the invisible God. So Jesus didn't just become one of us for 30 years, and then back to heaven. He stayed one of us. And our high priest, our advocate before the Father, is a human. Like us. And if that is not evidence of God's love for us, of the kind of person that Jesus is, I don't know what is. It's awesome to consider that there is a human, Jesus Christ, fully God still, and yet also fully man, who is in heaven before the Father. Let's pray together. Lord, we are just in awe of your Son this morning is humility, the way that he has gone before us, uh, as he's called the last Adam, we've only known the results of the choices of the first Adam. We've only known sin and death and destruction, and yet you raised up another human in the person of Jesus to undo that work. Thank you so much, Lord. I pray that we would model his humility. I pray that we would long for the day in which we get to see our Savior. See the scars. Fall at his feet in worship and in awe. And it's in Christ's name we pray.